CBDC. The Bank for Canadian Entrepreneurs is a proud partner of the Startup Women podcast. BDC is here for women entrepreneurs in their efforts to move forward and achieve their business goals. To meet their specific needs, BDC provides financing, strategic advice, and has a wide selection of free resources. Find out more at bdc.ca forward slash women. BDC is here for what's ahead. Scotiabank Women Initiative is a signature program designed to increase economic opportunity for individuals who identify as women or non-binary to be successful now and in the future. This unique offering helps women pursue their best professional and financial futures by providing unbiased access to capital and tailored solutions, bespoke specialized education, holistic advisory services, and mentorship. For more information, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. During the month of February, the Startup Women podcast is committed to telling the stories of Black women-identifying entrepreneurs. What barriers exist for this community? Who are the changemakers and trailblazers in this space? In honor of Black History Month, we are passing the mic to Black women across the entrepreneurship ecosystem to share their contributions, accomplishments, and to learn about their lived experiences as they've been building their businesses. Stay tuned all month and look out for a complete list of resources, information, and a recap of these stories at the end of February on the Startup Canada blog. We are thrilled to have Mystery Furtado on our show today. Mystery is the mother of two energetic and vibrant African kings by the name of Cade and Kylam. She is an internationally trained nurse currently preparing to sit the RN NCLEX exam. Mystery is passionate about diabetes management and prevention, which is why she formed a nonprofit called Type Diabetes It, which is the first BIPOC-led diabetes organization in southwestern Ontario. This role led her to starting the first BIPOC community garden in London, Ontario, which has now grown into a greenhouse project. Mystery was featured this year in the London Business Magazine, 20 in their 20s, as she also started Granny Peas, a small business that produces CMOS products. Her passion for health and wellness drove her to create a brand she could share her grandmother's recipes through. Welcome to the show, Mystery! I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Right back at you, Mystery. Let's dive right in. I'm so excited to get to know you a little bit more and uh, get to know your businesses because holy moly, you do quite a bit. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) So what's the most important thing that you want our audience to take away from our chat today, Mystery? Most important is that as an individual, as a business person, as a mom, it is very important to believe in yourself. Mm. So despite everything we're going to talk about, you know, there's always the 101 tips or or ways to success, but really and truly boils, it all boils down to you believing in you. Hmm, I love that. I think we all need a little bit of that these days. (laughs) We need that confidence. We can get it done. (laughs) Yes. Yes, we do. So take us on your entrepreneurial journey. What was, you know, this kind of aha moment where you, when you were founding Type Diabetes? So my aha moment 
had to do, well, it was a process for me to have my aha moment. Mm -hmm. So growing up, I've always been involved in diabetes care. I'm originally from Belize. I migrated to Canada over 10 years ago. And during this process, the works that I was doing in Belize mirrored my work in Canada, my experiences in Canada. So I was using Canada as, you know, my guideline, my go-to for protocols, procedures, in terms of diabetes projects and initiatives. So during that process, I told myself, you know, Belize is really struggling financially with resources. I want to start a non-for-profit in Canada whereby I can raise funds and do relief work for Belize. Mm. So that was the startup of type diabetes. We're only going to focus on relief work for Belize and, you know, probably grow internationally. But to my surprise, when I was getting incorporated, as I was working on getting my licenses, I had a, I was hired as a clinical educator at St. Thomas Hospital. You know, all these experiences, I realized that there is a lack of cultural representation within the healthcare field. Mm. And then I was like, oh my gosh, there is so much for me to do in my backyard, like right here in my backyard. And for many years, I never thought that I had a place per se in Canada. I felt like there's enough fighters. There's so much advocates. You know, I'm not needed here. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to have a voice here. But then I realized that I am needed and there is a space for me and my voice is so needed because there is a lack of, you know, culturally competent resources for people of color. Mm -hmm. There is a lack of representation in the healthcare system. And we all know that culture plays a vital role in health, in business, mm -hmm. at your work. You know, the culture of the individual, the culture of the organization has these ripple effects on access on self-perception, like how do I feel I'm going to attain optimal health? And I realized that I had so much work to do here and we decided as a board collectively that we're going to now have a two-fold mission whereby we're supporting minority groups starting in London, Ontario and also in Belize. Amazing. Amazing. And so according to your website, you're really aiming to be, you know, a catalyst for change and you're seeking to alleviate these disparities that you're mentioning around minority groups uh, that are living with chronic diseases. What does that actually look like? Can you walk us through the different elements that contribute to these inequities and what diabetes is actually doing to remedy some of these inequities? Yes. So what happens is as an individual or as a community, Biles back to culture, like I initially started saying. Mm -hmm. So for instance, with diabetes, a simple example is this. As a minority, as a woman, um, minority person, a person of color, a black woman, we have a non-trusting relationship with the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Okay? That applies to us, other minority groups, and indigenous, uh, and, and indigenous community, right? Absolutely. Toronto, which is the most diverse city in Canada, found out that there is severe racism and prejudice in the healthcare system, whereby women of minority, people of minority, indigenous, we don't get the right prescriptions that we need. We're not diagnosed in time, which leads to further complications. So right away, if we're having to access healthcare systems that we don't feel trusting, we don't see ourselves in the healthcare person. Furthermore, if you go, if you go for even deeper and you look at 
medicine on a whole, most of these studies were focused predominantly on a Caucasian community, right? Mm -hmm. So I can even give you a personal experience. So my son is born in London. Mm -hmm. And when he was born in London, uh, our family doctor, she's amazing. Okay. I love her. Mm -hmm. But she told me that my son needed to go see a specialist because something is wrong with his eyes. Okay. And I was freaking out. My grandma was like, don't worry about it, mystery. Your son is fine. She just doesn't know about black kids. And I was like, that's crazy. She's a whole doctor. She's been doing this for over 20 years. Like, might something's wrong with his eyes. So we go, we book a, a specialist appointment with, a, with an eye specialist. We go in and the doctor starts laughing. She's like, your son's eyes is fine. It just so happened that in a black child, the light is not going to reflect as if though the child had blue eyes. So the light reflection is not that he's nothing is wrong. It's that he's a black child. So in that simple scenario, you can already understand what happened, right? And that is what happens in diabetes care and in many aspects of the healthcare system is that if the doctor is not knowledgeable about the culture, you know, what does this disease look like in this community, you can end up misdiagnosing or not diagnosing that person. So this is what is happening in our healthcare system, why I need to keep talking about it, right? Why we need to be aware of it so that we can all learn. So when we talk about the, you know, being the catalyst is exactly that, bringing awareness, you know, talking about where we can get resources, ensuring that type diabetes becomes a resource center in the long run so that people of color can come and get the help care that they need. It is by no means an offense or an attack at the healthcare system. It's just drawing awareness that there is work to be done, right? And, and being a catalyst for change means that we are going to start now with the resources we have because London and the entire of Canada, we're not doing bad. Like we have one of the best healthcare systems in the world. Okay. Like if you look, look at your research, we can do better, but we're still not doing that bad compared to other countries. So it's a matter of redirecting resources. It's a matter of tailoring and re-educating what is available and making it culturally competent, which makes us that catalyst because everything we've been doing is being a catalyst, is being, okay, we have this community center available. I work very closely with the London Intercommunity yeah. Health. I go there, I volunteer. I have their nurses come out to our sessions. It's a give and give, you know, it's a give and take, but we're both learning. So I develop my skills. She gets access to a specific community that she may not have been able to reach out to. And we both get the work done in collaboratively, right? Incredible. And and to pull on that string a little bit, you run many different support programs across Canada, <laughs> um, you know, covering youth recreation leagues, nutrition training. You mentioned some of the education initiatives, a food yes. box program, I think, a community garden, just a handful of things that you've got going on. <laughs> so walk us through the actual impact that you've seen through these programs and diabetes as a whole. What does that actually look like in your community once you're starting to create these spaces and resources? Yes. So I just want to clarify, we're not Canada wide as yet. We're mm. fully London based. Mm. So all these programs are London based. Amazing. And I will speak about the impact of the food boxes, cool. the nutrition program, and I'm going to talk about the community garden. First, I'm going to talk about the nutrition program and I'm going to give a very detailed example. Sure. 
And I don't want to get too much into other factors because there's many factors that contribute to why, yes, why, you know, the BPOC community is, you know, more impacted than others. So we'll try to, you know, keep it on track and I don't want to go off on any, you know, different directions. But my kids, and I love them dearly, and I want to create a space and an environment where they feel safe, where they feel welcome, where it's free of racism, which is very hard. So with my kids being young and I've gotten them involved in sports, I've realized that even in the sports, there is a lack of people of color and minority groups because they can't afford it. Mm. Okay. So I've been working with a local uh, football club that looks soccer club, sorry, soccer club that looks at, you know, ending barriers that minority groups face in affording extracurricular. When we talk about affording extracurricular, it's not only an issue for minority or people of color. Canadians in general, you know, do not, they're not able to afford extracurricular. Okay. That's like a countrywide issue. So I've been working with this group to ensure that, you know, kids that look like my sons are also on the team. Mm. When when I've been going to these practices and being an assistant coach, as if though I don't have enough things on my plate, (laughs) and I'm an assistant coach and I'm out there and you realize that these kids are not bringing water bottle. They don't have the right shoes at all times. They come to practice hungry. I realized that we have about 80 kids. So this club went from having an enrollment of, let's say, 20 to almost 100 in like weeks wow. just by the community realizing that this club is catered to them. Mm. Okay. This club is for them. It's just to support them. If you don't have the money, let's figure it out. Let's apply for grants. Let's apply for subsidy. We're here to help you get your kids out of the home and playing sports. I was like, okay, we've got to bring healthy snacks. I partnered with the Sadat Show. She was instrumental in making the healthy snacks possible because we had no funding at the time. The snacks were coming out of our pockets. Okay, mainly is funded by the Sadat show. Sadat is so amazing. She was the one, you know, spending money, getting these healthy snacks. One of her practices, we had cherry tomatoes. Okay, you know what a cherry tomato is. You've had it, right? Love a cherry tomato. (laughs) You do. My kids don't like it. They know what it is, but I force them to eat it. We had all the kids at practice that day who've never had a cherry tomato. Wow. Yeah. Right. Just take a minute and think about how deep that is, Mm. that we have kids who are 14, 15, 10, you know, people of color, minority groups that they have never had a cherry tomato. And that is the impact that we're having, whereby we're bringing the healthy snacks, because if you think about it, it goes down to affordability and accessibility. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. If I have six kids, why am I going to buy a cherry tomato that's going to go bad? in two days and my kids are not going to be full. I'm going to buy something that is better that can keep them full and I can nourish their bodies. Right. Mm -hmm. So those interactions made me realize that we're not accessing the best fruits and vegetables because of where we live. And that is everywhere in the world, depending where you live, you have lesser access to quality groceries, quality clothes. And if you look at London, The north side is significantly nicer than the east end. Mm -hmm. And if you look at where minority groups settle, a lot of us live in the east side of town. Mm -hmm. So we have lesser access to better produce that goes bad. And this is in no means an attack at the grocery stores. 
it is just the reality because I myself, I live in the east side of town and I go to the north to buy my vegetables because they last longer and they're better quality. But many of the other women that look like me might not know that, might not have the time to do that because they're working two, three jobs, you know, so we live in food deserts. Mm -hmm. So that interaction led me to understanding why the community garden in collaboration with the food bank, again, another amazing entity and ally. Mm-hmm. Glenn and Jane have been amazing to tight diabetes journey. And they gave us a plot of land to farm wow. just like that by talking with me, by realizing the need and by wanting to do what they can do now, mm-hmm. like not talk about it. Here is the land. Here is the seed. Here's the soil. You get in there, work it. Wow. Just like that. So I round up a team and in less than half a day, we had four rows ready to go. (laughs) Yeah. The food bank was like, they were like, what happened? (laughs) We transformed this dry plat of like, like dry land that did not look like it could do much. We transformed it in half a day. I had four year olds getting their hands dirty. I had, you know, like the, like we had like 10 of us out there ranging from two year old up until like 30, 30 plus. Okay, we were all out there, kids, youths, children, just digging soil, you know, making the rolls and getting our garden ready. Wow. wow. And that made me talk to the youths and find out that they don't eat enough fruits and vegetables, even in homes that don't have six kids. Mm. And that pushed me to do my research. And I found out that 13.3% of all Ontarians suffer some level of food insecurity. 13.3% of Ontarians. Yes. Wow. Yes. That's, and that's this, a sobering stat. Exactly. And this, it has, I did not say anything about being a minority. I did not say anything about being a person of color. It is 13.3% of all Ontarians. Wow. And the research further explains that single parent home and children ages 10 to 18 do not consume enough fruits and vegetable or exercise according to the Canadian guidelines. So nothing to do with minority again or a person of color, just hardcore facts Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we're not even being studied. So when you go to Mm. dig deeper, the research tells you we don't have enough data to speak on black and indigenous community, which is another issue all by itself on an entire different talk show. <laughs> 100%. But just so you know, that is what we're dealing with. And that is what led me to do the community garden in collaboration with the food box, I mean, with the food bank. And we had four roles. It supported 10 families wow. who were able to say, like share our produce with over 30 families. So like all the families from the soccer club got bags of kale, got bags of um, broccoli. We had some vine spinach, hot peppers. We planted a lot of peppers because... The black and Latin community, we eat a lot of spice. Mm. So we planted so many hot peppers of all different shapes and sizes. We did tomatoes. It was an amazing experience. And that project led me to participate in the community decision-making process. And our idea for a greenhouse place second, you know, so excited. And we're going to be getting $20,000 to launch our uh, greenhouse. Incredible. Congratulations. Oh my I am so excited. 
I'm like super, super thrilled. Mm. Our food box, our food box initiative, it's the ethnocultural food box. The reason why I call it ethnocultural is because instead of looking at things like asparagus and kale, we look at okra, collard greens, collard low, more culturally competent greens that they're more familiar with to entice them. So these food boxes have no meat, they have no rice because our food within the black and Latin community, it's been influenced by slavery and westernization. Mm -hmm. So we consume more rice than we should and we consume more meat than we should. Mm -hmm. So to change the narrative, to have that effect on our community, we support them that they get a food box monthly with greens and all the ingredients to prepare a green meal that is culturally competent, so it's vegetables that they know, it's fruits that they know, they have a recipe guide, all the herbs, all the ingredients to make an entire meatless, carbless meal for their family. Wow. Wow, yes. wow, wow. I've never heard of that kind of perspective of, um, you know, trying to encourage a certain type of um you know, more healthy eating behavior through these types of boxes, but you're, you're coming from such a cultural perspective of acknowledging where these habits are coming from um, yes. and trying to really provide these healthy opportunities. That, that I, I'm so glad you shared that because I think some people may have just thought, oh, it's another food box program and, you know, has nope. some fabulous vegetables. There's really a lot more depth behind the packaging. A whole lot more. And that's why I have to be very clear when I speak about it to call Absolutely. it ethnocultural because there's a reason behind it. It's not just a food box program. No. And when we do use things like spaghetti squash and, you know, because part of cultural competency is using what is available on ground mm -hmm. and what is planted in Canada, you know, spaghetti squash is the different types of squash, the kale. How do we make those recipes culturally competent? How do we use herbs that we use and encourage? them to you know use it and you've asked what impact I've had well yeah. I'll tell you I have had African families and if you know anything about the African culture they eat a lot of meat mm -hmm. right and it's I'm not talking down about them I'm just giving facts yeah. right the, the, the meals are very much you know meat driven and I have managed to get over 10 African families who looked at me prior to receiving the box and doing training with me and they're like, I'm never going to eat that. Mm. I'm not having that. Where's the meat? Yeah. Where I had a lady look at me and she's like, mystery, where's the meat? I'm like, <laughs> just go home and try it and tell me how you would personalize what you made. Mm. She went home, she made it, ate it and was like, oh my gosh, it's actually really good. I'm going to make it, but I'm going to add more ginger. And I was like, do it. Go for it. And that is the impact <laughs> we're having whereby we're wow. getting pe families. Like I have another family. Her daughter is the one that makes all the meals. Every time they get a food box, she makes the meals. Mm -hmm. And now the whole family is encouraged to eating it because a big part of diabetes is that if your family do not understand what's happening to you, right? Mm -hmm. How are they going to support you? Mm -hmm. If we're not providing consistent information, you're going to feel like you're by yourself. Now, imagine being a person of color. You don't see anyone that you relate to. You get this food guide, right? You just get this food guide from the hospitals as to your new diet. Why are you going to comply if you don't relate to anything on that meal guide? 
because we use a chronic care model for diabetes, right? It's all about, you know, getting to the hospital, making you safe, getting you out, right? We're not really focused on prevention. No. So I had a friend, she had gestational diabetes. She got hospitalized and she was like, Miss, you're not eating this. I was like, you need to eat what I'm going to tell you to eat because then you can end up having full-on diabetes, and she struggled because the hospital gave her a meal guide and she eats nothing off the meal guide. <laughs> She's like, I don't eat this stuff. So her, 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 you know, her partner was bringing her food to the hospital every day. And this is what happens to so many of us. And even if you're not a person, let's say of the BPOC community, but you're Middle Eastern, the same thing happens to you. You get this meal guide and you're like, what is this? I don't eat like this at home. So why am I going to do it? And the ripple effect of that through all of those decisions that, yeah, you're, you're, um, you, you're pulling on such an important string and this foundation of not being understood is coming through in all these different parts. If your, your healthcare provider also doesn't look like you and it's not approaching this situation with that sensitivity, how are you going to implement their, their, you know, practices or recommendations with that trust? Because there's, there's not really that trust at the beginning of that relationship either. It's not. So we've, we've really focused on cultural nutrition as a key tool to it. A, prevent and B, manage. Mm. Reason being is as we grow, we do hope to, we do plan to include the more clinical aspect, the more medical aspect. But for right now, we've solely been focusing on the effects of culture, pushing cultural nutrition and educating from cultural lens by food because food is an international language. Mm. It doesn't matter what okay. you speak, what you look like, we all can relate to food. So while I'm targeting a specific um, demographic, my resources online can educate non, you know, the non persons of color, right? Mm. You're able to learn because you're gonna wanna try the food. You'll say, oh, this smells good. It looks good. I'm going to try it. And that is how important the work that I'm doing is because, yes, we're talking about people of color, but the facts affect all of us. Mm -hmm. All the numbers that I've given you are not for the BPOC communities, for all Canadians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's so much work that we can do collectively if we understand each other. We don't have to agree, but we can understand and we can work together to solve the issues that we're having. So that has been, you know, the, the impacts of, of, of our programs and very quickly to talk about the sports, the recreation, outdoor soccer. It was a means of bringing, you know, the older generation who, you know, might not be able to afford playing in a structured league. And we created a space for all races to register a team, to not feel pressured, to be able to afford it. And to play soccer, because you realize that we need to create more safe spaces where all minority groups feel welcome to come and play and that they feel they can afford it. So we run this program for the summer and the MVP and best goalie was a person of color that was over 55 years of age, was 60. <laughs> he was the most known. He was the celebrity of the league, and they actually won the league. There were there, it was a it was a, such a mixed team. You had different races, um, you know, just different minority groups. They all came together, and they made an amazing team. And their goalie, who was 
over 55 years of age, was MVP of the entire league and best goalie. Amazing. Amazing. So it was a great experience to see, you know, members of the community who might not normally, norm normally, you know, feel welcomed in a league, right? Because they don't want the young guys to maybe hurt them, you know, maybe they yeah. can't afford it. So this created a safe space for, you know, different ages to play together, compete in a friendly environment and get out of their house and exercise because a big part of prevention or managing diabetes is exercise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what you're eating, but also your exercise, what are you doing to try to stay active? And it's not about getting a gym membership or getting a gym pass. It's about getting outside, moving your body. And if you're able to get in a gym, fine. But most of us work two jobs, we have kids, we don't have time to be in a gym. That's not a realistic advice. It's not. It looks good on Instagram, but it's not It's not realistic to a lot of us. But what is, is five minutes of you eating properly, thinking about what you're eating, and then putting in five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day of walking or, you know, some exercise of um, projects and supports and you're approaching health so holistically, like you're really looking at all these different angles and how you can make a, a very clear impact. It's so incredible to hear these stories. How do you manage this, um, and maybe diabetes in particular, as a business? How do you manage this sort of social purpose, these community-focused areas, um, managing all these competing priorities and these really ambitious goals that you have to support the community? How do you get this done? Do you have any advice for our listeners or um, sort of popping the hood open a little bit with, with any feedback of how you're getting all this work done? <laughs> First of all, I have to say we need to figure out what we're passionate about, mm. right? Everything that I do boils down to my morals and my principles and my values are instilled, you know, instilled in me. Mm -hmm. So I lead from my perspective of morals and way of life. And when you combine that with the business world, you find a middle ground. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm able to juggle it because my business is who I am as an individual. Mm. You know, I'm never stepping out of who I am to achieve my overall mission, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't feel burdened because I am genuinely passionate. I stand by what I say 100%. Mm. Okay? Love that. The business aspect of it is what I rely on volunteers and, you know, other organizations to teach me how to build it into a sustainable entity that's generating revenues mm -hmm. because we're not there as yet. We're volunteer led. All the work that I've told you, I'm not getting paid for it. Um, mm -hmm. And that is the reason why I started a small business so that I can generate revenues from my small business to sustain myself and my family mm -hmm. until both entities start to kick off and generate salaries. We've been applying for a lot of grants for type diabetes. Almost every month, I'm averaging one or two grants that I'm applying for. Wow. Yes, it's wow. crazy. But the more you apply, mm -hmm. you increase your chances. Agreed. So for anybody asking me, like, how do you survive financially? It is not a walk in the park. It is not for the weak of heart. Mm -hmm. You have to believe that, you know, very soon, if you work at it every day, 
you will be you will make the money to cover all your bills. I have been able to manage really good partnership whereby I'm not being charged overhead prices. I work with Glen Karen mm -hmm. uh, Community Center. They give us a space to pack our food boxes. I rent an office space downtown that was supported by the very first grant that we got. Wow. That grant is running out, so I'm now, you know, applying for more. So the financial aspect, we're still working to have it more sustainable because eventually we don't want to only be dependent on grants mm -hmm. because grants do run out. Mm -hmm. We are working on, you know, our sales plan so that 2022 we're not only, you know, waiting on grants and with the greenhouse, the idea is that we can be a part of farmer's market, we can sell our produce and generate some revenue from the greenhouse as well. Mm. So we're looking at what that is going to look like in 2022. We want to help the community, but we also have to make money. But for now, we're fully volunteer, solely grants and um, the plan is that we're going to be able to receive grants and generate revenues independently. Amazing. And do you have any advice for other entrepreneurs or those who are, that are looking to start organizations that have some type of volunteer base or volunteer programs? Obviously, this is a space that is really difficult for organizations to manage because um, you really need to find people that have that natural, intrinsic motivation um, to help and to show up, um, especially around you know community initiatives. How how did you approach this from the ground up? Like, what what advice do you have around creating these grassroots movements in alignment with an organization that a founder might be starting? I need to tell entrepreneurs that nobody's going to do the work for you. Hmm. <laughs> you have to do the work. Okay. Great advice. I have I have spoken to quite a few persons, you know, interested trying to start their own business, and there is this there is this slight, you know, I think confusion maybe if we want to use the word or misconception is a better word that you are going to get people to do the work with you or for you that is a lie that is a big big lie okay you do the work and while you're doing the work you're going to meet people who are going to help you to move your agenda forward okay Gonna think of yourself in a boat and you're rowing in this boat, okay? You can never stop rowing, okay? You're gonna meet a current or a tide that's gonna push you and that tide or current might run out. Mm -hmm. So you gotta keep pedaling until you stumble upon another stream that's gonna push you further. So people and volunteers are helping hands that are gonna push you, mm -hmm. but they're not gonna do the work. And for myself, I don't know if it's luck, if it's the passion that I motivate people, but I've been able to find amazing volunteers mm -hmm. and they're only going to get you so far, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I still have to do the work to reach to where I'm at now and there's still more work to be done because we've only been incorporated since 2020. Mm -hmm. We were founded in 2018. So we're a very new organization and we've been able to retain our volunteers by you know, I've used Charity Village a lot mm -hmm. and I've posted my ideas and I've done interviews and it's a lot of work, but I've been able to find amazing hands. They help you for a month or two. They end up with a better job. So you got to keep working. Mm -hmm. 
Right now I'm working with Venture for Canada. Amazing. I've been uploaded to the Ripen platform. Amazing. I've now been put in touch with Fanshawe College. I have a volunteer from there. But it had to do with my, my networking skills. Mm. I was able to connect with beautiful souls like Jenna Goodhand. And Jenna is always opening doors for me, you know, and she's been able to connect me to different resources. So you got to meet with people. You got to find who your allies are, but you got to keep doing the work because in doing the work, the right people, the universe has a way of fulfilling your dreams. Okay. The power of manifestation is real. If you put it out there, I'm going to tell you, I've had programs that I put out there and the universe finds people and we get it done. Mm -hmm. I did a backpack program. It was not in our agenda for the year. It was not in our business plan, but I realized that these kids are struggling with back to school supplies in the soccer club. I realized my community, BPOC kids in London, at least those in the soccer club, I realized that there was a real need these kids were going back to school. They were concerned about if they're going to get new backpacks. There was a genuine concern and need. And I just put it out there. I'm doing a backpack program. You know, I'm doing it. And literally, after sending a few emails, talking to people, I had a church donate 100 backpacks with, you know, some supplies. I had the Canadian Health Nutrition. I'm really sorry if they're listening to this and I'm saying their name wrong. But I had the nutrition entity that supports Canada-wide, you know, give us, you know, make a donation of money to cover healthy food and supplies. Like, these things just came. It wasn't a thing that I knew anybody or I had the connection myself. I just kept knocking at every door. Mm-hmm. And every door I knocked and said, send an email here, mm-hmm. send an email there. Mm-hmm. You know, that person didn't answer, but they did. And I had the nutrition network, like literally come to my office, drop the gift cards. We got healthy food. We got supplies. And I did a backpack program just like that. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, one string that I think comes <laughs> through this entire conversation, Mr., is how resourceful you are that to your point, you know, you're knocking on all these doors, but you've been able to build so many of these initiatives, um, leveraging partnerships and just thinking really creatively around solving very urgent needs. So th- thank you so much for sharing all these different examples. It's uh, incredibly inspiring, Mr. Holy moly. Thank you. Amazing. So any final takeaways? We've covered a lot of ground in, in understanding you know, what you're working on. Any any final takeaways or pieces of advice that you'd like to leave our listeners with as we wrap up today's chat? My advice is that you figure out what you're good at, figure out what you're passionate about, align your everyday life with who you are as an individual, mm. and you don't give up, okay? Your brand should be you. If you have to step out of who you are to to build something don't do it if something doesn't feel right don't do it i've had business interactions where i didn't feel right you know mm-hmm. i did not feel right and they end up almost leaving me in a bad position mm-hmm. but i was able to come out of it because i stand firm on my principles and my biggest thing to to leaders to women is that as a woman you have to work harder You know, we live in a male-dominated world, 
and you cannot give up. And if you have friends that are discouraging you, you know, you might have to reconsider your friends. I'll give my final example for creating type diabetic. Everybody told me idea is over ambitious. Everyone, mm -hmm. every single person told me that my idea is too ambitious. It is, um, you know, it's going to be hard. And these were coming from places that are supposed to give me support. You know, I'm not going to call one of the entities, but I later on had a conversation with their new leaders. And I said, you know, my dream could have died in this building had I allowed you guys to kill my dream. Mm. And I and I went all over the place finding resources. How do I start a non-for-profit with zero knowledge? Just I know I want to get this done. Mm -hmm. I sent over a thousand emails wow. before I found one lawyer who was willing to work on my documents and give me a payment plan. Wow. So my lawyer is, you know, one of the biggest MVP in where I am right now because she had a meeting with me and she told me, her name is Carrie Mac. I don't want to butcher her last name, <laughs> but uh, Carrie is amazing. She met with me and told me I'll do it. And she allowed me to pay by installments, you know, Carrie McGlattery, Carrie McGlattery. She's at London. She met with me and she was like, I will do the paperwork for you and you pay me in these payments because I was working uh, night shifts. I was working as a personal support worker, well, as a healthcare aide. I had clients every night and I had to work, you know, very hard to generate the money to pay for my incorporation documents. Nobody gave it to me. Yeah. There's no funds for that. No. I work night shift for a whole year. I saved up money and she allowed me to pay her in installments to get my incorporation done. Mm -hmm. And in 2020, we became the full incorporated. It took me from 2018 when I first met her <laughs> up until 2020 for me to be able to afford my documentations. And she did that for me because she believed in where I was going. Incredible. So that is to tell you when they tell you no, but you know in your heart you can do it. You keep knocking at all those doors because one will open. I can't tell you when. Mm -hmm. I don't know who will, but it's going to fall on somebody's heart to help you. And that is my real life experience. Mm -hmm. And that is how I am where I am today, whereby it took me from 2018 up until 2020 to get my documents to, you know, develop where I am right now in 2022. Yeah. Follow that gut, follow your gut and yeah, stay, stay aligned with yourself. Your brand should be you. I love that. That takeaway, the yes. mystery. Thank you so much for joining us on the startup women podcast mystery. I can definitely say how inspired I am from hearing about your journey. Uh, and we cannot wait to see where you go next. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. <laughs> I hope to be back in the near future. You we bet. can have a chat about, you know, some updates. But this has truly been amazing. Thanks for having me. You're amazing. And I'm just so glad to be here and to share, you know, my little knowledge. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mystery. Thank you so much for joining us on the Startup Women podcast, where we are committed to telling the stories of women entrepreneurs and uncovering actionable advice that goes beyond the surface level. 
The Startup Women podcast is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles and is made possible with the support of BDC and Scotiabank so we can continue to power women identifying entrepreneurs. Visit startupcan.ca to explore the Startup Women flagship program and access advisory support and free resources. Be sure to check out the show notes to access important links, resources, and information that we mentioned during today's episode. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to another episode next month.